tonight, part two of Whose Land Is It? And you're going to see these next several chapters. We're going to try and take these in relatively large chunks. As I said, they're, they're a record of the conquest, but each one of them has some spiritual truths that we can glean from them. And so I really want to encourage you uh, not to miss those things. There's a lot of history, and there are a lot of things that are probably somewhat uh, unimportant, at least to us in context, because they really are uh, the division of the land. And, it, and so it kind of gives us some background information to what we see in the world today. But there are some spiritual truths to be found in each of these passages of Scripture. And here in chapter 14, we see the preparation for the distribution of land on the western side of the Jordan. So we had the eastern side of the Jordan last time, the western side of the Jordan this time. Pretty easy. If you look at the Jordan River, it divides the African uh, Rift Valley. Actually, that's the longest valley in the world. It goes all the way down to... Uh, Victoria Falls down in Zambia, so it's a very, very, very long uh, canyon. It, it divides kind of that part of the world, and so the Jordan Valley is kind of the end of it. Matter of fact, when you get to the Golan Heights, that's where it ends. And so here on the western side, the western bank, uh, these would be the lands that are occupied principally by the Palestinians today, or the, those that are called Palestinians, those displaced Arabs that come from all over the Arab world that are now living inside of the boundaries of national Israel. And so this would be contested land. These are lands that God uh, gave as an inheritance, and, and the Jewish people have, through subsequent uh, times of war, given them back. And so now the West Bank, that is the region that we're looking at this morning. Uh, we're going to see that divided up. We're also going to spend some time tonight uh, kind of off on a little bit of a tangent here because I get asked this all the time, and I, I want to really do a, uh, a biblical job of explaining a principle that's found here in this particular passage of Scripture that was used throughout Scripture, and that's this, this whole process of casting lots. It almost seems like gambling. We kind of read it and we're like, what, didn't they trust God? You know, what is this? So we're going to look at that in some detail at the very beginning of the study tonight. But as we prepare our hearts to receive the word, we pray uh, that the Lord would just use this time, even if it's a little bit obscure, even if we kind of get to that place where we look at this passage and go, eh, that's kind of weird. I don't know. I really need to know that. Um, it, it is for our benefit that all scripture is given by God. Amen. For our instruction in righteousness. Gives us gives us some tidbits, and there's some really important stuff here at the end uh, that we can absolutely draw from, and so I want to focus in on that later. Uh, in the meantime, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, and would ask God that you would just move in our midst by your Spirit. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can draw near to you because you draw near to us. So, Lord, you you love it when we... Uh, cuddle up with you and get close and ask you to speak to us. And so we want to do that tonight. And we ask that you would just move amongst us as your people. Pray that we be encouraged and strengthened and built up. Use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dig in here, I do have one little thing I was remiss in. We are in desperate need uh, of some help doing PowerPoint. So if you have a little bit of computer skills and want to be trained and learn, uh, one of the things with having technology is you've got to have people to run the technology. So uh, if that's you, uh, you can contact the church office. You can talk to Lisa. She's going to be doing the training. Uh, we, but we do need absolutely some folks that could help with that. And it is one of those things that's fairly uh, important to the service because we've kind of done away with things like, you know, some of us have been around a while, hymnals. Uh, we, don't, we can't turn to, to number 204. And would you all please stand? 
Uh, we, we have PowerPoint slides in their place, and we used to print those words and put them in the bulletin, and we don't do that anymore. So uh, we do have, have some need there, and if you would like to do that, that would be great. To also fill you in for those of you that did not get the email update, uh, Pastor Steve came through his surgery uh, okay. It was 12 hours of surgery. Um, I, I did finally f- figure out why it took so long. Uh, the last time they did this, they actually worked with a laparoscope. So when they do that, they inflate your chest cavity, and then they cut a couple of holes and put some instruments in through the holes. This time they actually cut him open on the front, and they took out one rib on each side so that they could maneuver their hands inside of his chest cavity. So as you might imagine, the recovery time from that is very extreme. Uh, so he is in a tremendous amount of pain. And that really is the problem right now is getting his pain managed so that uh, they can begin the initial stages of of doing some rehab with him, which he's likely going to be in the hospital for the next two weeks. Uh, He is still in intensive care right now uh, just because of the amount of uh, his body that they opened up. So please keep him and Gail in prayer and the church in prayer. And uh, I bring back their thanks to you. Uh, for allowing me to be with them last weekend, and I'll do that one more time. Um, a couple of us are doing a little bit of a rotation to try and give Steve the time to be able to get well. So uh, continue to keep them in prayer, uh, and they truly, truly, truly appreciate and love you all for kind of loaning me out for a little bit. Okay, so thank you for doing that for him. Verse 1 here in the 14th chapter of the book of Joshua. For these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan. Now, very important, underline it, please circle it. Uh, Mark it in your Bibles. They inherited it. And you should keep track of this throughout the remainder of this book. Uh, We we have seen a lot of warfare. The land's actually going to come to rest uh, in in our passage tonight. But it, it appears one could say, and this is why this is important as we begin, one could say that to some extent all ministries... Everywhere, doesn't matter what ministry you pick, there are human leaders. There are people that God's anointed. In this case, it was Joshua, Caleb. They even anointed the armies. The, the armies were called of God and used of God. There, that is without question true, even today, in our church. Churches have pastors, there are leaders, there are elders, there are other pastors that are assistants, Sunday school teachers. There's all kinds of people involved in ministry. But just as we are the recipients of grace, so the children of Israel were recipients of grace in that they inherited the land. They didn't win it. They didn't buy it. They didn't pay for it with blood, sweat, and tears. It was God's land. They were obedient. And because of the obedience and faith that they had, God gave them the land as an inheritance. And when I say that, what does that sound like? It's exactly like our relationship with the Lord, and that's how we get to heaven, isn't it? Okay, Our relationship with the Lord, there's a human element in it. I have to say yes to Jesus Christ, and so do you. No one comes to God the Father but through Jesus the Son. So without receiving him and believing in him and walking by faith, you can't see the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. And so the picture is God's grace has always been manifested throughout the Old Testament and certainly revealed in the New Testament. And so this inheritance is a picture of you and I. And it's what we get. 
by faith we receive the inheritance of eternal life that God has for us. And ultimately, one day, its most glorious expression, which would be heaven. Amen? So we can look at it from that standpoint. So they inherited the land of Canaan, the promised land. We inherit the promises of God through faith in Christ Jesus, which Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of all the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. And again, same word, inheritance. Notice verse 2, and their inheritance, three times the inheritance is, is, is mentioned here, was by lot. And the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. And so we have here a picture of something that's somewhat difficult to understand. At least it is for me. It was for a very, very long time. Because you have to put this whole process into the absolute most finite understanding that you can in order to get what it is that's happening here. Because when we think of casting lots, um, we can modernize it by saying throwing a dice, flipping a coin, drawing straws. There seems to be an element almost of mistrust in, in, in the mentioning of some process like this. And some go so far as to liberally interpret this passage that it's okay for us to go to Vegas and gamble and do all kinds of things. Well, you know, the children of Israel cast lots. I mean, they didn't really exactly have a lot of faith in the Lord, so they cast lots. That's not what it means. That's not what was being taught here. And the biblical principle is very clearly taught in Scripture. And there was a point in time when this particular process left the lives of the Jewish people and was never picked up by the church. And so I want to go through that with you tonight. Notice, if you will, it says that Eliezer, the priest, Joshua, the son of Nun, distributed this land. This is a process. And so this was the process whereby the Lord said, look, this is how you're going to do it. And so as we think on these things, how should we see it? The tradition of casting lots is found in the Bible a little over a 100 times. So if you go through and you find they cast lots or there was a casting of lots or the lot was cast, singular, you're going to find that about a hundred times. It's only found twice in all of the New Testament, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the basic process goes all the way back to, to the time that uh, David was king. It goes back to the book of First Samuel is where we pick it up. And there it was called the Urim and the Thummim. And there were these two stones. And, and in order to understand this, this helps us understand the process a lot better because these were two stones that were kept in a pouch in the breastplate of the high priest. And it was, in fact, the high priest that was responsible for taking these two stones out, and they were used to make a decision based on what the Lord had decided, desired for them. And so it was never some arbitrary process like we think of rolling dice or flipping a coin. It was something that was actually ordered by God himself. And so there are some things that we can learn from Scripture with regard to the practice. So keep that in mind. Those two stones were actually held close to the heart of the high priest himself underneath the stones which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were actually called, when they were in there, the breastplate of judgment. 
And so you had the breastplate of righteousness, which contained the 12 stones, and you had the breastplate of judgment, which was a pouch, which had two stones, and it was underneath the children of Israel, between the heart of the high priest and that which represented God's kids. So between the heart of the high priest, which the high priest was a representation of the Lord, he represented God. So between the heart of God and the people represented by the 12 tribes was this process of righteous judgment. And so it gives us a a little clearer picture than just a couple of knuckleheads grabbing a Yahtzee thing and throwing some dice in it and going, oh, I got a six, you got a four, I win. It wasn't that at all. Primary reason actually is given to us in Scripture for casting lots because it rendered, as far as the person was concerned, because judgment belongs to the Lord. Amen? Judgment is not my job. It's not something that I'm supposed to engage in. I can judge fruit. I can look at the things that people do and say, does that match up to Scripture? And thereby compare it to what ought to be the character of Christ in our lives. But as far as judging people... We're not supposed to do that. We're just simply supposed to say, does it match up the scripture or does it not? And so when you look at this process, uh, one of the things that happened, and it happens still to this day, is judgment often is not impartial. Amen? I can prove that to you very quickly. Uh, If we take a big pot of money and we take a couple of dice and, and I hand them to you, and you shake them up and, you know, we're going to roll dice for them. You actually want the money. Uh, that's the general reason that you would do that. So when we think of the things that we think about, we are incapable of being completely impartial. Amen? I like to do things for myself. I'm sure you do, too. There's nothing actually inherently wrong with that unless there's evil involved. And so if, if you look at the process, what God's trying to say is, look, I know the hearts of men, and I know that at times things like nepotism, politics, favoritism, bribery, uh, human wants and desires can get in the way. So he comes up with a way that the children of Israel can render an impartial decision. But what he does in saying that is relatively unique because he's going to go on to give us some instruction about this casting of lots. Proverbs chapter 16 says this in verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap. In other words, the high priest was actually supposed to fold up his garment, his tunic, the part that was over the top. He would fold up the garment. He would take the two stones. He would shake them in his hand. He would bless them before the Lord. He would throw them into his tunic. But notice what the next thing says in Proverbs. But every decision is from the Lord. So the assumption was they were doing this so no one could say, hey, look, you gave bribery to the high priest. You're the high priest's nephew. You know somebody in the temple court, and that's why it worked out for you. They were to take the stones, and it was assumed that the moment they left the hand of the high priest, God could intervene on those two stones in any way that he felt necessary. And so he threw those two stones. It was believed that the Lord actually caused the outcome. So it was not, in our sense, arbitrary. It was actually seeking the Lord. Very important that we get that, because if you look at this passage that we're in, so they cast lots, okay, and what they had was, in essence, an understanding of, 
here's where Shechem is, and here's where Jericho is, and here's where Jerusalem is, and here's where these land boundaries are. And so the first one that we're going to give away is Judah, which contains none other than the city of Jerusalem. So rather than go, well, you know, me and Caleb, we really like each other. After all, we're the two faithful spies. You see, they could have accused Joshua and Caleb and the high priest of rigging this whole thing. So they left it in the hands of what we would look at and go, ah, this must be chance. But that is not what they believed about those stones. They believed that God, in fact, himself did that, kind of like, you know, I, I don't know if you caught the little news clip with Peyton Manning after their after their overtime loss to the Seahawks. Uh, he went for like three days. I hate the coin flip. By the way, I do too, actually, the coin flip, because a lot of times the coin flip actually determines who wins the game. Whoever gets it first, if they go down and score, there's no chance for the other team. It does seem a little unfair. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a simple coin flip. We're talking about giving God an opportunity to speak. And so the book of Proverbs also says that casting lots, the, the actual process, uh, is something that is actually guided ultimately by the Lord. And there in Proverbs chapter 18, basically it says it also helps keep enemies apart. Because again, two people, two understandings of the same facts. You don't believe that? Ask two people the same question privately and then compare their answer you will not get exactly the same details. No matter how hard you try to make sure that you are being impartial, you will always get two varying distinctions as to, as to which one is, is one's belief and which one is the other's belief. So whenever you have human beings involved in it, there's an opportunity for us to gain an army. You go get five more people, and well, we'll just, you know, well, we think that we should have it. So this is another way that God could neutrally keep people from uh, becoming at odds with one another. And so the the book of Proverbs is, is has a couple of other instances, but lots basically were nothing more than rocks. And when you when you look at them, they normally had Hebrew symbols on them. They normally had the first five letters of the Hebrew alphabet on them. And so as they were cast, they were basically just like we would say A, B, C, and D. And so when they were flipped out there, the order that they came in gave you a wide range of options, A being the top, E being the bottom. If there were five stones, if you had A and B, guess what? It's a yes and a no, amen? It's A or B. It's two options. One of the problems that we have in our world today is that we have this this mindset that everything is negotiable, that you can just kind of do whatever you want to do. And if you don't like the rules, you can change them. God doesn't really work that way very frequently. Matter of fact, he is a God of absolutes. And so as he sees it, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And that's why he says, okay, you can cast the two stones that are in the high priest's garment, but the decision really is coming from me. And so there were all kinds of places that this was used. When you get to the book of Leviticus, uh, you're going to see that God used it there to, to determine which goat would be the scapegoat. Remember, you have the scapegoat and you have the sacrificial goat. You have the goat that's actually going to be killed. You have the goat that's going to be prayed over and sent out. So they would say, God, which goat do you want to die right now? 
And which one do you want to be set free to wander in the wilderness? Which one do you want the sins imparted to and it to take off? They also did that for the allocation of the lands that we're looking at right now. Also for the determination of the families and where they would relocate. We'll see that in in the latter part of this book. I will also see it in the book of Judges. You see it in the book of Nehemiah. So it was a it was a way for God to influence the the mind of man, uh, and they believe very strongly that God did that. Now, does that mean that that's how God works with us today? Uh, I absolutely think not, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. It, it's also true that when you look at your Bible, God never actually condemned the process of casting lots. He never came right out and said, okay, on such and such a date, no more casting lots. Can't do that anymore. Psalm 22 says about Jesus, they cast lots, divided my garments. So by the time we start to head towards the New Testament, it does take on a little bit of a more negative connotation. Matthew chapter 27, when they crucified him, they cast lots for his garments. We, we see that it was kind of picked up, and at that time, it started to kind of fade from practice in, in the people of the Lord. And by the time you get to the first chapter of the book of Acts, which is the last time it's mentioned in the entire Bible, the only time that it's actually done, as far as the apostles were concerned, was in the choosing of the replacement for guess who? Judas. And the lot was cast. And it fell on Matthias. And so by the time we get to that place, it ends just before Acts chapter 2 and the coming of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And so the last time that we see this process used was the very event that is directly before the Holy, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and in the church and indwells believers. And so what you really have is before the Holy Spirit came, it really appears that this is a way that God was able to influence decision-making processes. But once the Holy Spirit came, it was never mentioned again. So as we look at our lives now, we don't need to cast lots, and we sure don't need to play casino games, amen? We, we don't need to play games of chance. We don't need to consult mediums or witches. That was forbidden in Deuteronomy 18, by the way. Most of the Christians would go, well, you know, I just, you know, I kind of want to go have my horoscope read, or I want to go see what the tarot cards say. That's, that's silly, because the Bible strictly prohibits that behavior. Don't ever do it. It wasn't okay in the Old Testament. It sure isn't okay in the New Testament times. But what we have here with this particular thing is, had this occurred, had this event occurred, let's just change the date for a while, and instead of at that time, which is uh, about 830 or so B.C., instead of at that time, this had happened, let's say it was A.D. 70 or something, then I doubt very seriously you would have seen them casting lots, but rather you would have seen them calling a prayer meeting, and everybody would have been on their face, beseeching the Lord and saying, God, speak to us, send the Holy Spirit to tell us what it is that you want to do. And God would have simply spoken to them by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we now have as believers. Amen? I would also remind you, there's another little group you're familiar with, you call them Mormons, Church of Latter-day Saints, that the whole process of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which contains almost 4,000 alterations from the King James Bible, was done by casting lots. That's what he did. 
took two seer stones, threw them in a hat, put on his magic glasses, and he got the Book of Mormon. So I'm kind of thinking we don't need to do that anymore. Amen? The second thing that we see here, an explanation of the nine and a half tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, remember, there were some people that were already there before Joshua and the gang got there, and they were on the eastern side of the Jordan. So they they waited, and then they moved across. They went from the land that was uh, theirs because they took it from the Canaanites to the land that they inherited on the opposite side. So pick up now in verse 3. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two and the half tribes on the other side of the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they gave no part to the Levites in the land except the cities to dwell in with their common lands for livestock and their property. And the Lord had commanded, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. And so the first question that people come up with, they do a little quick math, and they're going, okay, if there's two tribes, doesn't that make 13 tribes? Anybody else see that there? There aren't 13 tribes because they're not actually talking about making them into two tribes. You're taking one tribe, dividing them in half, and that's the way you can have the two and a half tribes because you've got to have half of a tribe someplace for that to happen. Okay, so here's the way it works. Joseph, the children of Joseph were two tribes, and so we speak of the 12 tribes, which are the literal children of Israel, of Joseph, of, excuse me, of Jacob. And so the children of Jacob were 12 tribes. But his descendants, one of his sons, Joseph, was divided into two. So now you can have the two and a half tribes on the one side of the Jordan and two and a half tribes on the other side because if you take the nine and a half plus two and a half, uh, you're going to come up with 12. But it clearly says there's 13. So where's the half tribe? It's the fact that one of those tribes is actually two groups of people. So it it gives us an understanding then of how that could be said. So the next thing that we see is probably the important part of this passage of Scripture. So you have these descendants of Joseph divided into two tribes. Those tribes make half of them. That would give you a total of 13 if you put them all together. But there are literally one, and half of them is in one place, and half of them is in the other place. Verse 6. And then the children of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. Remember, that's where they had been encamped previously in the Acacia Grove. And Caleb, the son of Jephthah the Kinzonite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord had said to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Do you remember that word? He's saying, God promised us this. And God's been faithful to his word. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to to him as it was in my heart. And again, it's so important to know the entirety of your Bible. Because when you realize what's being said here, you remember the story and you remember what happened. The children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness uh, they, they now come to the, the edge of the promised land. They had looked in, and God said, look, I want you to send 12 spies, and I want you to go in and spy out the land. And so they did exactly that. And those who spoke with faith came back with one opinion, 
and those who spoke with flesh came back and gave another opinion. The eyes of flesh said, look, if God said so, we can believe him, we can trust him, and we can simply go in and take it. No matter what it looks like, God is true. God is faithful. God will do what God said he would do. And so he goes on in verse 8, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. It is interesting what a few dissenters can do to a body of believers. What we have here is a picture of how gossip works, how lack of faith works, how when people have their opinion that's contrary to what God's already said and what God is already doing, and when they express it, when the sheep get scattered, how quickly it can turn to unbelief for masses. All of a sudden, the great leader Moses is called into question by ten people, and the entire nation of Israel does not enter the land except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. That's what can happen. That's what happens when you reach that place to where, you know what, I'm just going to do what I think. I'm going to do what I see. I'm going to walk instead of by faith. I'm going to walk by sight. And what I see is giants. And then I transmit to you what I see is giants. It can't be done. We've been called to walk by faith and not by sight. Because that, that the eyes that we see with the eyes of flesh, so we're not to ignore and be ignorant of the dangers around us. We're to trust God. And so it was unbelief and a small group of people with a different opinion that caused the entire church, if you will, to modernize it, to walk in the wilderness. To me, that scares me for several reasons. One of them is we're all prone to do that. I'm prone to do that. I look at circumstances, situations. I put everything on a spreadsheet. I'm just like, okay, well, there's you know, six of these, there's five of those, there's 12 of these, and so it adds up. I'll just do it that way. That's my natural tendency. Secondarily, everybody's got an idea. Amen? Don't we all have ideas of how we think things should get done or what we should do with that particular circumstance or situation? We all reach that place to where we walk into a situation and we think that we've got it nailed. And when that group becomes a relatively substantial group because that group talks to each other, it can get really ugly. Because then pretty soon they talk the faith out of the other people. I've been guilty of doing that. Don't like to admit it. But I've been part of some of those groups. I remember one time Connie and I were in South Calvary Chapel Vista. And Brian Broderson had decided that we were going to go to Yugoslavia. And I'm thinking, you're nuts. I mean, have you looked at our bank account lately? This is going to cost 100000 bucks. So a whole bunch of us going, and we need plane tickets, and we got to stay there, and we need to get a car. And, you know, I'm just doing the spreadsheet thing. 
And I remember talking to a whole bunch of other, well, you know, I just don't think we should do it. God had to spank me by sending me on that mission trip. From which I still have friends to this day in the mission field in Hungary and Yugoslavia. You see, for me, I'm looking at it kind of going, oh, man, I don't know. You know, you know how much work this is going to be? It's going to be a headache, and sure, it's going to be over there. Oh, yeah, great, grand plan, but you're not going. You see, you can do that. Or you can say, you know what? I believe that leader's been called of God. And he may not be perfect, but someday he's going to stand before a holy God and answer for what we're doing right now. And so I'm going to trust God. I'm going to let God work these things out. That was Joshua and Caleb. Because you know what they had to do? They had to go wander with everybody else. Amen? They had to go suffer, in essence, for the group decision. But look what happened. At the end, was not God faithful? Two out of all of the children of Israel actually lived long enough to enter into the inheritance because they had faith. We want to be like that. We want to have faith. You know, sometimes things, can I just tell you, don't make sense? As I've gotten older, it's like, Lord, just, I, just don't, could you just take my brain out of the equation? Just, I don't want to think about it anymore. Could you just tell me what you want? And so here, nevertheless, my brethren, who went up with me, Those made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed my Lord. That's our key. That's our ticket. And that's what we're going to see as we finish this passage up tonight. And so Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. You know who he's talking about? Joshua and Caleb. Moses was not talking to the whole body of the children of Israel. He's talking to the two guys that said, you know what? Yes, amen. We believe you, God. We're going to wholly follow. You said go in and take it. That's what we want to do. Now, of course, they couldn't do it themselves. I mean, theoretically, God could have used two guys and defeated everybody and done the same thing that he did with the children of Israel some 45 years later. But he didn't choose to do that because he wanted the children of Israel to go take their inheritance. What he was looking for was a leader brave enough to go and people with enough faith to follow. A leader brave enough to go and people with enough faith to follow. Caleb was one of those 12 spies. So was Joshua, of course. One of them came back with a a profession of faith, believing, and the others came back with the profession of the arm of flesh. Ten spies believed that Israel would be destroyed in an attempt to take it. And so Israel believed the ten faithless spies. The ten faithless spies measured the giants they saw on the land against their own strength. When they looked at, they saw their own strength and said, My strength is not enough to defeat them. Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, measured those spies and measured the giants in the land by God's strength. 
They said, I see the giants. I know the spies don't have the same opinion, but I'm going to wholly follow the Lord. God said we're supposed to do it. Let's go do it. And, of course, those 40 years of wilderness wandering, a whole generation that died in unbelief, they're found in Numbers chapter 14, was because of walking by sight, not by faith. These two guys are the only people of age that are left amongst the children of Israel. And it's an important part of the story. Because you have two guys who walk with the Lord for a very long time that provide the backdrop of faith for the children of Israel. And it's important to see that. I often will tell young people as they're they're wanting to be in ministry, those types of individuals that I see at the Bible College, and, and we have some here. There's a wonderful thing about zeal, because zeal will get you to go do anything, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And there's also a wonderful thing about wisdom, because it knows when that's the wrong decision. You need both. You need wisdom. You need zeal. You need senior saints. You need young zealots that will go do anything. And the body of Christ should be made of both. That's why we had the high school worship team up here tonight. We want young, zealous people growing in the Lord to be raised up from within, to be brought to that place to where they're the next generation. You turn it over to them because there's going to come a day in time when I'm going to get, you know, really older than I am now. Don't know when that is. Could be next week for all I know. When it's going to be time for me to step aside. It's going to be time for maybe me to do something else, write books or something. I don't know. I don't know when that is. Don't think it's next week. But there's going to come a time when the ministry, if it's built on simply the plans of man and not faith in God, whom we are trusting wholly, the ministry will die. And the people will wander. It has to be built on wholly following the Lord. That's what we see in this beautiful passage of Scripture. Very fitting that Judah is the first tribe, because that was Caleb's tribe. The faithful ones. And they would inherit, they would, they would have as their inheritance the southern kingdom, in essence, the land of Judah, which would include the holy city, Jerusalem. So when that die came out, when that stone came out, that piece of sardin came out, and it was tossed, The Lord said, you were faithful. And by my spirit, you get Jerusalem. Now, of course, the children of Israel had the Levitical tribe. Amen? They didn't get any land. So guess where they went? They went to the holy city. They dwelled in the land of Judah along with this first tribe. And so there they were in the holy city, the place of the beautiful temple that Herod would go on to build later, the second temple. And they generally lived in the region uh, that we now call the West Bank. And so that's where the priests lived. And they ministered in Jerusalem. All because of Caleb's faithfulness. Caleb calls Joshua in this passage back to the promise that Moses made. And actually made that promise first in Deuteronomy chapter 1. 
I wholly followed my Lord. He's actually not making up anything new. That's what Moses said about him. For 45 years, he wholly followed the Lord. And for those 45 years, he watched person after person after person who had been disobedient, who had not walked in faith, die off. And you have to imagine that there was some point in time, he's now 85 years old, where he's going, man, this is getting tougher to walk by faith. This is getting harder. It's not getting easier. Did I miss something? You begin to question your own. Unless you're wholly walking with the Lord, you can be all over the map spiritually. Connie and I have some interesting conversations. We make it a habit every morning of, of talking. We'll have coffee and we'll just talk about stuff. And I can tell you there are times when our, our conversations are like, Lord, are we going to get through this? It's another one of those things? Haven't we been through enough of those things? And fill in the blank, because there's a lot of repeat things in ministry. And you think, well, I'll never have to do that again. Wrong. Like the next day, the same thing comes up. You see, what you're really seeing is, is how you need to have the Lord's strength constantly. It was not easy. Most of us recognize that really successful people are wholly given to one thing. Amen? Yeah, you talk to somebody who's an entrepreneur, they're like possessed with their business. You ever talk to those people? It's like, oh, yeah, well, I drink this juice every day, and if you just drink this juice, you know, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll never do anything ever again bad. And You talk to them, and you would think by slugging back some of this green slime in a bottle that somehow you're just going to instantaneously be completely healthy. Because the person is wholly devoted to their product, right? You go on TV, you get out some OxyClean. I mean, if, I mean, what can't you clean up with OxyClean? I mean, Billy May said so, right? You see, when somebody's that devoted, they can have a tendency to affect a lot of people, amen? People say, well, you know, it must work. I mean, look at the guy. I mean, he's just, I just saw him pour red wine onto a white t-shirt. It's perfectly clean now. And because he's devoted to that, all of a sudden you're going, man, this stuff must really work. Can I tell you the same is true for your relationship with the Lord? When you have someone with that much zeal and trust in the Lord, and they repeatedly tell you with everything that's within them, trust the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Don't lean on your own understanding. Give yourself completely to him, and then they walk that way for their entire life. You start to get encouraged, and you encourage other people to do the same because you believe in your own product. And in this case, I'm taking a little artistic license. That product is the Lord, amen? I believe in the Lord. I trust in his word. I want to walk by faith, and the more I do that, and the more zeal I have, and the more I can tell you because I live it, not because I read it, I live it. See, I can't encourage you to do something that I don't have the guts to do myself, amen? If I'm going to ask you to walk by faith, guess what I better be doing? 
need to be walking by faith. Amen? So if I'm going to do that, the only way that translates to you is through you watching me do that over and over and buying my own product constantly. Saying, yep, Jeff said that, and that's exactly what he did. That's what we see Caleb doing. For 45 years, he wholly followed the Lord. And it was not easy. There were a lot of troubles in the wilderness. Amen? There were a lot of things he didn't understand. He went through a bunch of junk that wasn't even his deal. Amen? He didn't cause it. He walked in faith. We need to give ourselves with that dedication to the Lord. Notice verse 10. Caleb now seizes God's promise. And now, why? Because he wholly followed the Lord. And now, the Lord has kept me alive. You see, he could say that. Why could he say that? Because he had wholly followed the Lord. Because everything was against him. Everybody else died. But he believed in the product. And he wholly followed the Lord. Just as he said, these 45 years and ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that at the end of your life? That you wholly followed the Lord, and that what God's word said was truth to you, and you lived in it, walked in it, experienced it at the end of your life. I wholly follow the Lord. And that's why I'm getting this inheritance. Now, of course, it's God's grace that's going to get you there. But you want the inheritance of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord. You want the promises of God that comes from walking with him. Notice what he says next, and I love this. Never give up, never surrender. Amen? As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the days that Moses sent me. Just as my own strength was then, so now is my strength for war and for going out and for coming in. Now that's a God thing at 85 years old. I don't care who you are. I don't care, because you know what? They didn't have vitamins then. They didn't have, you know, they didn't do double shots in the afternoon of espresso. They didn't have five-hour energy. Just take some, you'll feel better. They didn't have any of that stuff. They didn't have a gym to go to. There was no well care at the local clinic. They lived a hard, absolutely miserable life at times. They've been wandering around the Google Sinai Desert and see how long you think you'd last wandering out there. It's one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. Daytime temperatures during the summer in the mid-120s. Nighttime temperatures below freezing during the winter. They were there for 40 years. He says, look, I'm as strong as I was then. And now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. You realize what he's saying? He said, I don't want to take the easy road. I'm not looking for the soft because I'm not looking for a golf course membership. I'm not looking to settle down and have a little rose garden. I want another mountain to climb. 
Matter of fact, if it's the hard way, that's probably the best way. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will send with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. This is an 85-year-old guy who's already gone through the conquest of the land, who's seen God faithful, who delivered him out of the wilderness, who is now with Joshua, and he's saying, let's go take some more ground. That, my friends, is the Lord. That's not human strength. That's God's strength. And Joshua blessed him. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, as an inheritance. And Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, the Kenzanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was, and I love this, Kirajath Arba. Arba was the strongest man of the Anakim. The former name of the place that Caleb inherited was the stronghold of the enemy. Sound like any story you know in the book of Revelation. The earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's. Amen? And one day he's coming back to this earth with the title deed. He's going to claim it. And guess who gets to rule and reign with him as priests and kings? Y'all. Y'all. Did that for Rick because he's actually from Kentucky. You didn't know that, but it's true. It's for you. The strong places of the strongest enemy that you have ever faced is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. The toughest battles you've ever fought have had a purpose. The tallest mountains you've ever climbed have been for your benefit. And when you walk with the Lord, you have that as your seal and your guarantee. When you wholly follow the Lord, you'll climb every mountain, including the very last one. Because he says so. And then the land had rest from war. Here an 85-year-old man isn't asking somebody else to climb the mountain. He's not looking for the helicopter to get him to the top. He's not looking for the easy route. He's not saying, wow, you know, well, I'll take the mountain as long as there's a golf course. I like to play golf. But I'm not looking forward to golfing in heaven. I'm looking forward to the fullness of joy in his presence. I'm looking forward to talking to some of these guys. I don't know if you've ever thought, you realize you're going to get to talk to Joshua and Caleb? That going to be awesome? You ever wonder what, talk to Moses. The stories that guy will be able to tell about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Oh, you should have been there. What the disciples will now say compared to what they did say that's recorded in the New Testament. I'm thinking Peter's going to have a change too. You see, family, there's some mountains still left, enough left for us to climb. There's still some ground to conquer. 
I don't know about you, but I want to have the heart of Caleb. I want to seize those things. So be encouraged. Ephesians chapter 1 tells you that you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Amen? Everyone. Not some of them. Not one of them. Not a couple here or there. But your inheritance is literally the Lord of glory and all he possesses. That's what you have to look forward to. Kind of makes the mountain climbing worth it. Amen? Most of you know I've been an avid climber my, most of my life. I like climbing mountains. I do it for the old reason, because they're there. But I'll tell you what would make it a lot more fun. The top of every mountain completely encrusted with diamonds and gold. You just go up there and kind of scrape it all into your back. It'd be a little heavy, but you're going downhill. That's kind of the way it is for us in our walks with the Lord. The best is yet to come. The top of the mountain's heaven. We should be encouraged in our climbing. We have a glorious inheritance, and we need to keep looking up. Caleb didn't take it easy. He didn't look for a task that would suited for an old man. He said, give me another mountain to climb. I want to go out climbing mountains. Maybe we'll take some risk because of it. Do some new things because of it. But I know this, I'd rather fail climbing a mountain than get buried in a valley someplace. First John chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, help us to look for new mountains to climb. Lord, help us to be patient, run the race, as Paul said, with endurance. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on heaven. Lord, help us to look forward to that day with great anticipation when you call us home. Lord, we pray that as we look at our lives, that we wouldn't just simply see the giants. We wouldn't just see the fortified cities, but we'd see the king that conquers. Lord, help us to follow you wholly all of the days of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Go find a mountain and ask the Lord to give you some extra strength to get up it and then go find another one after that.